I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ron Waldman, a professor of global health at the School of Public Health and Health Services at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Waldman has co-authored a perspective article on cholera and the need to improve global access to safe water and sanitation. Dr. Waldman, a current research article reports on the situation in Haiti, which accounted for more than half the world's cholera cases in 2010 and 2011. The focus of that article is surveillance and control of the epidemic, which began when cholera was imported after the 2010 earthquake and then was exacerbated by the earthquake's damage to the infrastructure for water and sanitation. So to start with Haiti, what should the global development community be focusing on there in order to have a more lasting effect on cholera and other diarrheal diseases? Well, thanks for the question. I think that there's a number of things that the global development community should focus on in Haiti and elsewhere if it wants to be able to control diarrheal diseases in general and cholera in particular. And the interventions that should be promoted really cover a broad range from prevention to treatment. On the preventive side, as we say in the article, providing access to safe water, clean water, and adequate sanitation facilities is absolutely essential and is one of the fundamental principles of public health practice. It's unfortunate that we haven't been able to achieve uh, adequate levels of access to safe water or sanitation in many countries, even as we get into the current century. On the treatment side, because diarrheal diseases will continue to occur and cholera will continue to occur, most likely in many places around the world, we need to have facilities that are uh, well-equipped with appropriate supplies, staffed with trained health workers who are qualified to treat for diarrheal diseases and cholera, and these facilities need to be available to populations in both urban and in sparsely populated rural areas. On the cholera front, which is not true of all causes of diarrheal disease, we're uh, also privileged to have improved uh, and proven safe vaccine that has an acceptable level of effectiveness and that could be deployed where uh, certain conditions are met to protect populations against acquiring cholera, which is a particularly severe form of diarrheal disease and one with a uh, particularly high case fatality rate, if not treated adequately. In your perspective article, you mentioned a few major cholera epidemics over the past 20 years that, unlike ongoing endemic disease, have gotten international attention. How often do these epidemics occur, and what triggers them? Well, I mentioned a few of the more recent ones. Of course, cholera has been a disease which has uh, affected um, humans for a long time, and uh, which has affected human populations around the world. We're currently in the seventh pandemic of cholera. That means it's spread around the world. The six previous pandemics have also uh, wreaked havoc in many, many societies around the world. Uh, each of those six receded to its kind of home base uh, in the Ganges River Delta area of India and Bangladesh. But... Um, Cholera epidemics occur with reasonable frequency. I'd say we can count on large-scale epidemics, large enough to draw the world's attention uh, on a fairly regular basis, maybe several times each decade. But that doesn't mean that cholera 
does not exist in between those epidemics. There's always cholera, as we point out in the paper. And in fact, over the last few years, the number of cases of cholera that have been reported to the World Health Organization has increased regularly. Uh, that might be because reporting gets better, of course, but there is reason to believe that, in fact, the actual incidence is also on the increase in many places around the world. So cholera has taken a serious toll in places uh, like London, for example, where John Snow's studies that uh, really established uh, many of the fundamental principles of epidemiology as we practice it today were first described uh, uh, cholera took a very serious toll in the mid-19th century there, and uh, also in uh, parts of the United States and pretty much everywhere in the world. It doesn't occur everywhere in the world anymore, though, and I think that uh, it's worth paying attention to why that is currently the case. You mentioned the vaccine. Are there also advances in treatment that we're seeing? There have been advances in treatment. The most significant one by far is the advent of oral rehydration therapy, which has been around now for a number of decades and which has been hailed by some as the most important advance in public health practice of the last century. Most cases of cholera can be treated adequately and competently and completely with oral rehydration alone. Deaths from cholera are due not to the effects of the bacteria itself, but rather to the dehydration that is caused by a toxin that's elaborated and secreted by the bacteria. So replacing the copious volume of water and electrolytes that are caused by uh, the toxin affecting the cells of the intestinal lining is enough to keep patients alive. Some patients have required more than 50 liters of replacement fluid and electrolytes, but when they have received that adequate quantity of replacement, they have done perfectly fine. More recently, the use of uh, antibiotics has expanded, and it's very interesting to note that while uh, antibiotics do reduce the duration of an episode of cholera in a particular patient, which is, of course, a good thing and relieves the suffering of that patient, antibiotics also have a public health impact by reducing the amount of bacteria that are shed into the environment and therefore uh, put other people at lesser exposure to contracting cholera. So antibiotics are a, a useful adjunct. And more recently than that, studies have shown that the addition of zinc to the treatment regimen also contributes to a shortening of the duration of cholera episodes and episodes of other diarrheal diseases as well. The countries with the highest cholera case fatality rates are in Africa, with a few in South Asia. Is that because of the poor water and sanitation infrastructure, or are there other factors? Is uh, the oral rehydration therapy not available there as it should be? No, I think when we're talking about case fatality rates, uh, we're really talking about uh, the outcome of cases of cholera that have already occurred and the proportion of people that die once they have contracted the disease. So um, poor public health infrastructure in the form of poor water and sanitation might uh, affect the incidence of cholera, but not necessarily the outcome of each case. 
The outcome is really affected by a variety of factors that play out in different ways in different places. For example, people may have um, poor access to health facilities, so it might take them longer to get treatment uh, from someone who is qualified in cholera treatment and in oral rehydration therapy. And cholera is a disease that can kill quite rapidly, in fact, in as little as 12 hours. It can just be remarkable how quickly this disease progresses. So uh, that's one reason is that people might not have adequate access or rapid access to a public health or a medical professional that can treat them. And when they do have access to health facilities, it's possible that there aren't enough qualified personnel who are familiar enough with cholera to provide competent and adequate treatment. There might be people who are competent, but there might not be enough people, especially in an epidemic of cholera, to be able to provide monitoring and supervision over the large number of patients for whom they become responsible. It's possible also that supplies are, as you suggest, are not sufficient in the health facilities to which people have access. And it's possible that milder cases of cholera might be dealt with, but that the more severe cases uh, are not treated as adequately as one would like, and that would contribute to a higher case fatality rate as well. You note that we've made significant progress since 1990 in terms of access to safe drinking water. We've achieved Millennium Development Goal 7 in advance of the target date of 2015. But progress is much poorer for proper sewage disposal. What makes sewage disposal more difficult to achieve? It's a hard question for me to answer, so let me say something. Uh, let, let me begin by saying that while it's true that we have made progress and actually achieved the target for Millennium Development Goal 7, as you mentioned, we've done so on a global basis. That doesn't mean that we've been able to do that in every place. That's kind of an average uh, figure. So when we say that we've made these achievements or that we've accomplished this goal, we've done so in a way that's not necessarily equitable so that there are many, many people around the world who don't have access to safe water still, even with the achievement of the goal. And in some places, although we've achieved the goal on a global level, in some countries and some regions, we haven't. Why sanitation lags behind, I can't really say. I I imagine it's a... um, Sanitation tends to be the poor stepsister of public health infrastructure development in many ways. We use the phrase water and sanitation, but when we do, we frequently mean water improvement. I I just don't know the reasons for this. I think people don't invest as much in the development of improved sanitation facilities, don't pay as much attention to it when they do. Uh, We know ways of improving sanitation facilities, but it doesn't get the same kind of attention that improving safe water supply does, and in turn, safe water supply development doesn't get the same attention that a lot of more clinical, more quote-unquote medical interventions might get. Despite the fact that Millennium Development Goals are not necessarily, in fact, as you say, are not achieved equally around the world, do you think that they have been successful in drawing funding and commitment to these kinds of neglected aspects of development? I do. I think they're good aspirational targets. They work on a political level for sure. They're targets, they're goals that 
political leaders from around the world have agreed on. Some countries have addressed them more aggressively and have made more progress for a variety of reasons, including that they have had the means, the financial resources, and the competence to be able to do so. Other countries still are held to some extent responsible and accountable for meeting these goals, and almost all have made progress towards meeting them, although some have fallen somewhat short to this point uh, for a variety of reasons, that some of which are within their control, some of which are beyond their control. But I do think that it's good to have these aspirational targets and goals uh, on which there's broad agreement and towards which uh, progress can be measured in quantitative terms. In general, do you think it makes sense to shift international funding to these kinds of horizontal infrastructure building purposes as opposed to vertical individual disease, individual disease outbreak purposes? That's, uh, again, a question without an answer, I'm afraid. I guess that I could say I think it's important to do both. I think that everyone would find agreement with that. Uh, I, I think it's really important that we find the appropriate balance. And I think that uh, in, in other programs have found that it is important to make uh, investments in strengthening health systems across the board. If you look at what might be called vertical programs uh, that are currently being uh, implemented from the global level, like Gavi, for example, which pays particular attention to vaccines and vaccine-preventable uh, diseases, they've found that you can do a lot more and make progress more rapidly by strengthening health systems to be able to deliver services for a broader array of uh, interventions. Similarly, the Global Fund for HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria has also found that uh, it, it is important to strengthen health systems across the board. So the strengthening of health systems is an example of what you're calling a horizontal approach to programming. Uh, another example would be investing more heavily in the development of public health infrastructure. You know, in public health, we put a premium on prevention and preventive interventions as opposed to the more curative medical interventions. And I think it's fair to say that in many parts around the world, there has been inadequate investment in the development of public health infrastructure, such as um, waterworks in municipal areas and improved sanitation facilities, both in urban and, and rural areas. Uh, which might require different strategies. Those are strategies that investment in infrastructure we know pays off. We know that because we saw a precipitous decline in mortality rates and specifically in mortality from diarrheal diseases in what are now wealthier countries in the latter part of the 19th century and early part of the 20th century when investments in public health infrastructure were made. And those improvements in public health status occurred long before the advent of antibiotics or the development of vaccines on a public health scale. Thank you, Dr. Waldman.